Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Waller, and welcome to episode eight of Audio Scrambler, a podcast about music. I don't know if you've noticed, but I try to keep this show about current events. Sometimes the show centers on a new musical release. Sometimes it'll center on a current news story. And this time we're going to try something different. This time the current event is an anniversary. Down on me. This is Big Brother and the Holding Company featuring Janis Joplin on lead vocals, performing Down On Me, one of the songs they performed in 1967's Monterey Pop Festival. They're one of many groundbreaking acts that reached new heights of prominence during the Summer of Love, and we're going to be looking at them and many other influential musical artists from 1967 during the next few episodes of Audio Scrambler. We'll start with this episode, episode 8, which actually isn't about 1967, it's about 1966, because 1966 was an absolutely revolutionary year in music, and if it had never happened, there never would have been a summer of love. One thing you should know before we get into it, though, is that this is a rebroadcast from my old podcast, The Songland Diaries, which ran for one season in 2016. So anytime you hear me use the phrase 50 years ago, just translate that to 51 years ago. And so now with that caveat taken care of, I present to you episode eight of Audio Scrambler, the summer before the summer of love. During the summer of love, something like 100,000 hippies converged on San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district to smoke pot, promote free love, jam on acid rock, and dance brawless in Golden Gate Park. It was a photojournalist's dream come true, and generally considered the moment the countercultural movement of the baby boomers came of age. But of course, no coming of age happens instantaneously. Things had to happen before the Summer of Love to make the Summer of Love possible. And so we turn our attention to the summer before the Summer of Love and seven events that changed rock forever. It's interesting to note that up until that point, rock and roll had been fairly formulaic. Hit songs were almost invariably danceable ditties with standard R&B instrumentation and banal lyrics about dancing and romancing. But in mid-1966, seven really big events occurred that changed rock so it would no longer be just music to dance to, but would also be music to listen to. Or, to put it differently, the summer before the summer of love was the watershed period that turned rock from the soundtrack of a sock hop into a bona fide art form. Let's take a look at those seven events. Event number one, the Rolling Stones release Paint It Black, May 13th, 1966. That stringed instrument you're hearing is called a sitar. It's a definitively Indian instrument, and Paint It Black was the first number one song in the Billboard Hot 100 to feature it. And why would that be a big deal? Consider what rock and roll was like before Paint It Black. 
It had been top of the pops for more than a decade, and in fact, had already cycled through its first generation of chart-topping celebrities. People like Bill Haley. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Little Richard. And Chuck Berry. We're well past their chart-topping prime in the mid-60s. And why is that? Why had rock and roll's first generation of chart-toppers peaked and plummeted so quickly? Well, there are many factors, but one is that beginning in the mid-1950s, rock and roll marketed itself pretty heavily toward a youth market. By the time the Rolling Stones and other bands of the British invasion were dominating the American charts in 1964, the Bobby Soxers, who had been dancing to Bill Haley in 1955, were in their mid-twenties, married with kids, and working as account managers for IBM. Their sock-hopping days were distant memories, and a new generation of American teens had handed the mantle of good-time rock and roll to the British invaders. Fresh new bands like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Dave Clark Five, and Herman's Hermits. These bands brought a breath of fresh air to rock and roll, and they certainly put their own spin on things, but when it came right down to it, the bands of the British Invasion were not all that different from their American predecessors. Here's Little Richard in 1957. And here are the Kinks in 1964. Here's Buddy Holly in 1957. I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. Are you gonna give your love to me? And here are the Rolling Stones in 1964. As you can hear, the British invaders, like their American predecessors, were using standard R&B instruments, mostly drums, bass, and electric guitar, to make upbeat songs with innocuous lyrics for dance-oriented teenage fans. Which means they were just as susceptible to premature career peak as their American forebearers had been. By the time the Rolling Stones released Paint It Black on May 13, 1966, it was already abundantly clear that British mania was waning. To illustrate this point, let's look at April 1964 compared to April 1966. On April 4, 1964, the Beatles set a record that has never been approached by any artist before or since. They occupied all five of the top five positions on Billboard's Hot 100. By contrast, in April of 1966, for the first time in over two years, not a single British artist occupied any of the top ten positions. And what about album sales? In April of 1966, the top seller of albums was not even a rock act. It was this guy. That's the Latin-flavored lounge jazz of Herb Alpert. 
In April of 1966, he had five albums in the top 20 and was outselling the Beatles two to one. The ever-fickle American teen dance market was turning its back on another generation of rock and roll pop stars, and the end of British mania was clearly in sight. It may be hard for contemporary audiences to imagine this because we've been living in an extremely rock-dominant culture for more than 60 years now. But there was a time when the whole culture might very well have said, eh, screw this rock and roll nonsense, we're all about the lounge now. But that didn't happen because the Brits saw the writing on the wall and they changed their whole approach to music. They experimented with instruments, song structures, and lyrical themes that had never really been part of rock and roll before. When the Rolling Stones released Paint It Black in May of 1966 with its dominant sitar sound and its lyrics that use colors as metaphors for states of mind, including an especially depression, they were boldly asserting that rock is now more than just good-time dance music. It was a medium for all kinds of artistic expression. Needless to say, thumbing their noses at the very market that had made them what they were was a big gamble. But history has shown that it was a gamble that paid off. Paint It Black put the Brits back in the top 10, and by June of 66, it occupied the number one position where it remained for 11 straight weeks. In subsequent decades, it would become the entertainment industry's go-to song for symbolizing the psychological distress that comes from social upheaval. It can be heard in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, CBS's Tour of Duty, the 1997 film Devil's Advocate, and numerous video games including Guitar Hero 3, Rocksmith 2014, and Call of Duty Black Ops 3. And on a personal note, I can confirm from the cover shows that I've performed that whether an audience is predominantly 20-somethings or predominantly 70-somethings, Paint It Black gets them worked up every time. Event number two, the Beach Boys release Pet Sounds, May 16th, 1966. Another song I've covered a lot that almost always gets audiences revved up is Sloop John B, a traditional Caribbean song that the Beach Boys reinvented and covered on their 1966 album, Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds is generally regarded by rock critics as one of the best albums of all time. But as with Paint It Black, to really understand its significance, we've got to look at what was happening before it was released. Like the bands of the British Invasion, the Beach Boys began their career making lighthearted rock and roll with conventional R&B instrumentation for teens who wanted to dance. And like the Brits, they were not substantially different from the generation of rock and rollers that preceded them. Here's Chuck Berry's 1956 hit, Sweet Little Sixteen. All over St. Louis and down in New Orleans, all the cats want to dance with Sweet Little Sixteen. And 
now compare that to the Beach Boys 1962 hit Surfing USA. Yeah, it's the same exact song, just with different words. And not even better words, just different words. In short, like the pre-1966 British Invaders, the pre-1966 Beach Boys were playing standard rock and roll dance music pretty much the way it had always been played. But then things changed. Brian Wilson, the creative leader of the Beach Boys, began showing symptoms of what would eventually be diagnosed as schizoaffective disorder a mental illness that made him agoraphobic, terrified of flight, and averse to screaming crowds. This made touring pretty much impossible, and so Wilson put all of his creative energy into studio work. Somewhere around that time, he heard the Beatles' album Rubber Soul and was impressed by how all the songs on the LP seemed to work together as a unified whole. There were absolutely no filler tracks, and so Wilson decided to make his own unified album. While the rest of the Beach Boys were on tour in Japan, he started work on Pet Sounds. While previous Beach Boys albums had featured a handful of musicians with most of the instruments being played by the Beach Boys themselves, Pet Sounds featured more than 60 musicians, most of whom were highly experienced paid studio artists. Among the sounds on Pet Sounds that were atypical for rock albums of the day are Electro Theremin on I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, a string ensemble on Don't Talk, French horn on God Only Knows, a bike horn on You Still Believe In Me, and the sounds of a train and a barking dog at the end of Caroline No. Pet Sounds was an unprecedentedly rich sonic tapestry that evoked the beach, the circus, the orchestra, the train yard, and the doghouse, all with richer harmonies, melodies, and song structures than the Beach Boys had ever before created. It also pushed lyrical boundaries by eschewing the language of teen fun in favor of self-analysis. From start to finish, Pet Sounds is an exploration of interior states presented as love songs by a narrator who is lost in a world that alternately perplexes, humbles, and inspires him. In financial terms, Pet Sounds was not an immediate success. It cost a fortune to make, about $70,000, which is roughly equivalent to a half million of today's dollars. And it sold considerably worse than any Beach Boys album to date. In time, however, it became regarded as one of the best rock albums ever made. It ranks number two on Rolling Stone magazine's list of 500 best albums of all time. Second only to... The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. An album whose unconventional instrumentation and conceptual solidarity 
Paul McCartney has repeatedly stated was directly inspired by, you guessed it, pet sounds. Another big influence on the Beatles was this guy. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? That's Bob Dylan as he sounded in 1963. Acoustic guitar, harmonica, no other instrumentation. This particular song is called Blowin' in the Wind. And like many early Dylan songs, it's carried mainly by the lyrics. Far more well-written than the average pop song of its day, Blowin' in the Wind speaks of social ills in artfully suggestive terms, implicitly calling for broad changes that would make America a more equitable place for all. It was a non-performer on the charts, but it insinuated itself so deeply into the mainstream American psyche that I remember it being not only in my Cub Scout campfire songbook, but also in my church's youth hymnal. My parents loved the Dylan of 1963. But the Dylan of 1966 was a different story. Event number three. Bob Dylan releases Blonde on Blonde, May 16, 1966. The song we're hearing right now, Rainy Day Women, numbers 12 and 35, is the best-selling song from Blonde on Blonde, and it was highly controversial because its repeated refrain, Everybody Must Get Stoned, is a double entendre that brings to mind both getting pummeled with rocks for acts of heresy and getting mentally altered with illegal drugs. Well, By the way, when I said Dylan influenced the Beatles, I mean it's said that he's the one who introduced them to marijuana. But I also think he meant stoned in the other sense, because right around that time, Dylan had some pretty good reasons to feel like he was getting pummeled with rocks for acts of heresy. Here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. Event number four. A heckler gets international press for calling Dylan Judas. May 17, 1966. In case you couldn't make it out, that recording you just heard was a disgruntled fan heckling Dylan during a lull in a show. You liar! The incident happened at the Manchester Free Trade Hall in England, but it was covered in papers all over the world. And the reason the heckler called Dylan Judas is that Dylan came out on stage with an electric rock band. Incidentally, the night after Dylan released Blonde on Blonde, the third in a trilogy of albums that, along with Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited, heralded Dylan's dramatic transition from acoustic folk singer to rock star. Here's Dylan in 1964. Oh, the times they are That's the title track from the album, The Times They Are A-Changin'. Critical but optimistic and completely acoustic, just one man with a guitar and a harmonica. Now here's Dylan in 1966. This is Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat from Blonde on Blonde. As you can hear, it's straight up blues rock, electric guitar and a little rough around the edges. 
The fear among many of Dylan's most dyed-in-the-wool folk fans was that rock and roll, which up to that point had been regarded mostly as a juvenile and profane musical form, would cheapen the social conscience and lyrical sophistication that Dylan had come to represent. In retrospect, however, most musicologists believe the opposite happened. Dylan, rather than lowering himself to the level of rock, had elevated rock lyrics to the level of genuine poetry. Listen to this verse. Well, you look so pretty in it. Honey, can I jump on it sometime? Well, you look so pretty in it. Honey, can I jump on it sometime? Yes, I just want to see if it's really the expensive kind. I just want to see if that leopard skin pillbox hat of yours is really the expensive kind. It balances on your head just like a mattress balances on a bottle of wine. You know what balances on your head like a mattress balances on a bottle of wine. You get the impression that Dylan is going after something bigger than war or racism here. He's going straight to the core. He's going after how people think. This person in the brand new leopard skin pillbox hat is so full of vanity and pretension, cocky and self-assured, but that hat is precariously balanced on her head like a mattress on a bottle of wine. And Dylan wants to jump on it. He wants to see if it's really the expensive kind. He wants to see how easily it'll all topple over, and he wants to be the one who topples it. It's possible to listen to Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat as just another rock song with a cool, gritty groove, but when you stop to listen to the lyrics, it's really poetry. It's using metaphor to say a lot with relatively few well-chosen words. Dylan's foray into rock and roll was nothing less than an artistic revolution. Dylan had turned rock into poetry, and it would never be the same again. And then what did he do? He disappeared. Event number five, Dylan's motorcycle accident, July 29th, 1966. On July 29, 1966, Dylan was riding his Triumph Tiger 100 near his home in Woodstock, New York, when he crashed and apparently was seriously injured. I say apparently because there are a lot of unanswered questions surrounding this incident. Dylan claimed to have broken several vertebrae, and the seriousness of the crash seems to be confirmed by Dylan's immediate disappearance from the public eye and his nearly eight-year sabbatical from touring. But it cannot be confirmed with medical records, because no ambulance was dispatched to the scene, and Dylan was never hospitalized. Some have speculated that the accident never really happened, or that it happened but wasn't at all serious, and that Dylan used it as an excuse to retreat from the music industry. Whatever the case may have been, the accident did not slow Dylan down for long. In fact, this supposed retreat was the single most prolific period in Dylan's entire songwriting career. He and his backup band, soon to become known simply as The Band, composed over a hundred songs during that time and created a new breed of Americana that is just as vital today as it was when they invented it. Recordings of their work leaked out into the bootleg market and inspired the selection of Woodstock, New York as the location of the Woodstock Music and Art Fair of 1969, which supplanted the Summer of Love as the definitive gathering of the hippie generation. 
To this day, Dylan's post-accident retreat stands as one of the most shining examples of a rock star stepping out of the limelight at the peak of his career to hone his art with feverish intensity and assert that he would be what he wanted to be and not what the music industry or even the public said he should be. And here's what happened elsewhere while Dylan was in retreat. Event number six, the Beatles release Revolver, August 5th, 1966. In mid-1966, the Beatles were quite possibly the only rock band that could match the Beach Boys' ability to spend a fortune experimenting in the studio. The result of their experimentation was an album called Revolver which featured a number of recording innovations, including the one you're hearing on this song, Tomorrow Never Knows. That odd sound is the sound of a tape played backwards and then looped. No pop group had ever attempted anything so outrageous before. Other unconventional features of Revolver include a string octet on Eleanor Rigby, traditional Indian instrumentation on Love You Too, and Doc's side sound effects on Yellow Submarine. Revolver may not have been the full-fledged concept album that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band would prove to be the following year, but history has come to see it as the Beatles' other major artistic triumph. It's been ranked as rock's best album of all time by The Guardian, Q Magazine, VH1, Entertainment Weekly, and even Lo Servitor Romano, the official newspaper of the Vatican. So, to recap... The Brits and the Beach Boys were pushing rock's musical envelope, and Dylan was pushing its lyrical envelope. And in the process, rock was becoming a distinctly more adult form of art. The big irony here is that the Beatles' shows were still being attended by thousands of hysterical teenagers. There was an incongruity here that was becoming weirder and weirder all the time. So what did the Beatles do to resolve it? Event number seven, the Beatles' last concert, August 29th, 1966. The last concert of the Beatles' 1966 tour was in Candlestick Park, home of the San Francisco Giants, on August 29th. Rumors had been circulating that this might be the Beatles' last show ever. During the pre-show press conference, a reporter asked the Beatles this question. Do you have any plans to go on separately in the future? Can you repeat that question, please? Will you be working separately in the future? Or together? So together, probably. In case you weren't quite able to make that out, the reporter is speculating that the Beatles might disband. But when she asks them if they're going to pursue solo careers, they look genuinely confused for a split second, like they literally don't understand the question. And that's because at this point, they weren't considering a breakup at all, just a shift from concert performers to recording artists. 
But that reporter had good reasons to ask her question. After two and a half years of performing to hysterical, screaming, out-of-control teenage fans, rumor had it that the Beatles were getting fed up. John Lennon, in particular, was tired of hiding his frustration. Earlier that year, he had made his infamous comment about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus, a comment for which he had been criticized as if he were celebrating the fact that he had dethroned the Lord. But... I've always thought he made that comment with a sense of weariness, like it was a shame that they were more popular than Jesus because they weren't doing anything all that significant. John, and in fact all the Beatles, wanted to do something more. Years later, Ringo would say in an interview for People magazine, when we toured, we realized they would have applauded if we had farted. The hysteria was ceasing to be amusing. And so, around 10.15 p.m. on Monday, August 29th, 1966, the Beatles struck their last chord, said goodnight to the fans at Candlestick Park, and never toured again. Just a few months later, in that same city, a committee formed. It was called the Committee for the Summer of Love. Its mission was to create a convergence of youth counterculture in the Haight-Ashbury district that would take place during the summer of 1967. By all accounts, the committee's planning proved to be fantastically successful because somewhere between 75,000 and 100,000 hippies came to San Francisco that summer. Needless to say, music was a major part of the event planning because... For the hippies, music was more than just something to dance to. It was something to listen to and something to think to. It was for getting high and changing your entire outlook on life. It was for not only protesting the increasingly unpopular Vietnam War, but also for criticizing the mindset that had made it possible. It was about jumping on that leopard skin pillbox hat and making it tumble. It was about showing the world how precariously the whole thing had been situated and announcing that from here on out, things were going to be different. But of course, for music to be about all that, it first had to be about something more than a sock hop. And that's why this week, 50 years ago, was so important. Without Paint It Black, Pet Sounds, and Blonde on Blonde, and Revolver just a little bit later, the unthinkable may very well have happened. Rock may have died, and we would all be listening to novelty lounge jazz today. But rock didn't die. It grew up, and with it, an entire generation of Americans came of age. Thank you all for listening to episode 8 of Audio Scrambler, The Summer Before the Summer of Love. This has been a rebroadcast of my old podcast, The Songland Diaries, which originally aired in May of 2016. 
It's a prelude to the next couple of episodes of Audio Scrambler, which will be all about the music of 1967. In the meantime, if you have any great ideas for future episodes of Audio Scrambler, I'd love to hear about them. Send me an email at audioscramblerpodcast at gmail.com or contact me through any of the other usual social media. Like Audio Scrambler on Facebook, subscribe through iTunes, we're out there. Until next time, I remain your free-spirited, love-happy host, Bob Waller, reminding you to keep your ears open because the more you listen, the more you love. Oh, 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 oh,